0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. While you're turning there, let me uh, just mention, I normally do this during the welcome, but if you're here this morning and you're visiting, uh, we're really glad you're here. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, If you would like to connect or say hi or ask a question or anything uh, of me after the service, I'll be kind of milling about uh, up here in the front. Uh, But I'd love to say hi to you. Uh, We're really glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, 1 Samuel 17. This is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the full chapter to us this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. uh, We'll talk about those, and then we'll kind of walk through the rest of the chapter uh, as the sermon goes on this morning. Uh, But this is 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Listen to this. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokoh, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoh and Azekah in FS Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 125 pounds. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. It's about 15 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is God's word for us this morning. This is a familiar story. In fact, this is one of the few stories in the Bible that I think has worked its way into sort of the cultural and collective consciousness of our world. Kids know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, popular author, Malcolm Gladwell, wrote a book about Davids and Goliaths. Uh, whenever an upset happens in a sporting event, people say it's a victory of a David over A Goliath. This is a familiar story and as often happens when we come in the Bible to familiar stories, we can just assume that we know what is happening and is going to happen. But this morning I'm hoping we can have fresh eyes to look at this story again. It's helpful as we come to 1 Samuel 17 to understand a little bit of the context of the surrounding chapters, what has just happened earlier in the book and in the life of God's people. What's important to note is that this is a moment of uncertainty for God's people. In the preceding chapters, Saul, who was the first king of the unified kingdom of Israel, Saul had just been rejected. By God. He was an unfaithful king, and God said, that's fine. You're no longer going to be king over my people. So he's been rejected by God, but still Saul is clinging to power. Well, not only has God rejected one king, and in the next chapter, God had anointed a new king, a young shepherd named David. So there's this question mark kind of hanging over the story. What does it look like to be the king of Israel? What's going to happen here? Who is the king? And now what has happened is Israel is threatened. They are threatened by the Philistines. And I think it's just reality for us. We all experience uncertainty. That's what's going on here, that's the background of the passage, but we all experience uncertainty all the time. Whether it's looking towards retirement and wondering what your life might look like. Every time you get sick or are struggling with your health, you're wondering, Is, am I ever going to be the same again? There's uncertainty just sort of baked into that. I think many of us are wondering if we're ever going to live in a world where we can go to the doctor's office without wearing masks again. Who knows? It is uncertain. And what this passage is going to show us, what this story is going to show us, is that the answer to uncertainty is courage. The answer to uncertainty is courage, and this story demonstrates for us what kind of courage that is. And so as the passage opens, notice that there are tons of details. We get all kinds of details about especially where this battle is about to take place. They are gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah, and they're encamped between Sukkot and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And we have all of this detail, and all of that detail is there to convey to the original readers and to convey to us, this is an important location. This is an important place that this battle is about to take place. Uh, it is the Valley of Elah, verses 1 and 2 Tell us that. Now, the Valley of Elah was a fertile region that had a lot of natural resources, but most importantly, the Valley of Elah was basically a highway into the heart of Israel. If this piece of land was lost, if this piece of territory was conquered by the Philistines, they would be able to ride directly into the heart of the kingdom and loot and plunder to their heart's content. It's helpful for us to realize, too, when we're talking about battles and nations in the Old Testament, you know, now we think about battles and people have to get on planes and ships and fly far away for them. Uh, Israel and Philistia were about 12 miles apart. This is not super far. This is not even a day's walk. In fact, if, well, let me, before I do this, does anyone here live in Gainesville, Excellent. That makes this next part easier. Philistia is about as far from Israel as Gainesville is from Warrington. And if the bloodthirsty people of Gainesville decided to invade Warrington, the Valley of Elah is basically 29. Like, we have to hold the the highway, or otherwise they're going to come right in and they're going to take all our stuff. They're going to kill people. It's going to be terrible. So this is an important location. Israel has to fight for this. It's worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. And what you have is they are basically on opposite sides of the valley. Uh, The Philistines are on one side, standing on a mountain, and Israel is on the other side. When out steps from the Philistine army a soldier. Verses 4 to 7 tell us about him. His name is Goliath, and he hails from the city of Gath. And Goliath is huge. He's a big guy. The text says that he is six cubits in a span, which would make him about nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, you might note... Um, This is a a nerd moment for you. You've got a little footnote next to the number six uh, there in verse, uh, oh, I lost it, verse four. And if you look down at the footnote, it says, uh, Hebrew Septuagint, Dead Sea Scroll, and Josephus four which means uh, we have in the Old Testament manuscripts that we have different copies of. Some of them say that Goliath is six cubits in a span, and others of them say Goliath is four cubits in a span, which means he's either nine feet nine inches tall or six feet nine inches tall. And here's the thing. I think Goliath was probably six feet, nine inches tall. There's some reasons for that. If you have questions about why I think that, I'd be delighted to talk to you about that after the service. Uh, But no, this is not sort of like critical Bible scholars trying to undermine our confidence in the Bible. It's just that these documents were written a long time ago and we have different copies and some of the copies have variations. So I think Goliath is six feet, nine inches tall, but also I think it doesn't matter. And here's why it doesn't matter. From the archaeological record, we know that the average Israelite man was between five feet and five feet six at this time in history. I'm five six. I'm like one of the taller guys in Israel. If I'm going to go fight a guy who's six feet nine inches tall, you're not betting on me. Like this is not looking good for God's people. Goliath towers over me. And he's got armor on that weighs 125 pounds. He's got a spear with a head on it that weighs 15 pounds. And he wants to fight. This is not looking good. So get a sense of the stakes of all that is happening here. Israel is potentially about to lose a hugely important and strategic piece of territory unless someone can defeat this giant warrior. You've got uncertainty, certainly, but it's now compounded by crisis. So what do God's people need here? What do they need? What needs to happen next? What should verse 10 and 11 and following tell us happens? Because what happens in verses 8 through 10 is Goliath steps forward to fight, but what he does is he offers them single combat. And by that, basically, he's he's proposing, hey, let's not waste all of this time and manpower and having everyone run together and fight. That's just going to be a lot of unnecessary bloodshed. How about I'll fight on behalf of the Philistines, and you pick a warrior and send him out. And if he defeats me, then the Philistines will serve Israel. But if I defeat him, then the Israelites will serve the Philistines. One man in this context would represent the entire nation in combat. So what do God's people need? They need someone to fight for them. Who is the obvious choice to fight for God's people? The obvious choice is King Saul. There's so many reasons King Saul is the obvious choice. Not only is he the king, which means he already represents God's people to God directly, we know from 1 Samuel chapter 10 that Saul is taller from the head, the shoulders up, than any man in Israel. So Saul's like the tallest guy around. He's the best armed. He's the king. He's probably between 6 foot and six six, which means Goliath is still probably going to dunk on him. But at least he can maybe play defense. We don't quite know. Israel needs a courageous champion. They need a king to fight on their behalf. But verse 11 tells us all they have is a coward. Saul is terrified of Goliath. We should be disappointed in Saul as you get to the end of verse 11. Saul is clearly not doing what he is meant to do as the king of Israel. So why does Saul fail? Like why does he just blow it here when what, in what is obviously his responsibility. I think there's two things we see in the passage. One is that Saul misunderstands the nature of the battle. He misunderstands all of the dynamics that are going on here. Saul looks in front of him and he sees a giant warrior. What he does not see is the shame that Goliath brings on Israel and her God. You see, Saul misunderstands the nature of the battle because he sees a military warrior and he doesn't realize that this is actually a religious conflict. He misunderstands the nature of the battle, but he also, this is the second thing, misunderstands the nature of his office. In Deuteronomy 17, uh, Moses, uh, God speaking through Moses, lays out the qualifications for the kings of Israel. And the king of Israel is not meant to be a king like the kings of the nations. Those guys would sort of use the kingship to enrich themselves and to just get all the things they wanted. But Deuteronomy 17 says the king of Israel shall not multiply wives or horses or gold for himself. He shall not enrich himself at the expense of God's people. Rather, the king of Israel is meant to lead the people in obedience and faith. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, it is commanded of the kings of Israel that they write for themselves, they copy for themselves the book of the law that they might have a personal copy to read and reflect upon during the course of their reign. The king of Israel is meant to be a model Israelite. So a faithful king here in this situation with Goliath and the Philistines would be outraged at what Goliath is saying. He would be horrified by what Goliath is saying and he would step forward onto the field of battle and fight courageously, on behalf of the people of God and of God himself, Saul misunderstands the battle, Saul misunderstands his office, and so he is instead an unfaithful coward for a king. But we all know the story doesn't end with verse 11. So we're going to think now about David. David we're going to think about why it is that David succeeds where Saul fails. And in fact, there's not a mystery there. Because where Saul misunderstands the nature of the battle, David understands clearly the nature of the battle. Verse 14 tells us that David was too young to serve in the army at this point. Uh, we know from Numbers chapter 1 verse 3 that the army of Israel was comprised of people tw- or of men 20 years old and older. So David is not yet 20 when this happens. And David enters the scene, verse 20 tells us, he is taking provisions to his older brothers uh, who are there in the camp of Israel uh, waiting to participate in this battle with the Philistines. Verse 21 tells us that David arrives there at the camp as the army is lining up in their ranks. But verse 23 tells us that Goliath again steps forward. He steps forward to denounce Israel and to denounce Israel's God. We learn there in verse 23, Goliath has done this every day for 40 days. Verse 24 tells us that the very sight of Goliath is enough to send the army of Israel into full retreat. So David is sort of wandering around through these terrified, quivering masses that are the army of the people of God. And in verses 25 and 26, he overhears some things that are happening there in the army. For instance, uh, Saul has promised... That any soldier who kills Goliath can marry the king's daughter, can marry Saul's daughter, and their family will no longer have to pay taxes in Israel. That's what it means to say they will be free in Israel. They will no longer have to pay any taxes. But verse 27 says there have been no takers because the people there were smart enough to realize that dead men also pay no taxes. David doesn't see a battle. David doesn't see a military conflict. David sees a Philistine denouncing and defying the God of Israel. And in verse 26, David begins speaking up against this Philistine, saying, will no man go and do this thing? David understands this is a religious conflict, not just a military one. But David also understands the nature of the office. David has been anointed king, but he is not yet ruling and reigning over Israel. He understands something. We're going to see it here in just a minute. He understands what it means for him to be the king of Israel because a faithful king in Israel will contend for the honor of Israel's God. And so in verse 32, David signs up to fight the giant. He signs up to fight Goliath. Saul hears that David has been asking questions about why no one is brave enough to fight this guy. And he realizes that's probably bad for morale. And he sort of summons David to the tent. And before, David, before Saul can even get a word in to be like, hey, stop doing that. You're killing morale. David says to Saul, to the king of Israel... Saul, don't be afraid. I'm going to fight the giant for you. That is a gutsy way to start a meeting with a king. Don't be afraid. I'll fight him for you. Verse 33, uh, you can see Saul is thinking about the PR of this. Uh, It's not going to look great if an 18-year-old who's not yet old enough to serve in the army fights on behalf of the king of Israel. So he starts to talk David out of it. He's trying to get David to not want to fight Goliath. But David responds back to Saul in verses 34 to 37. And he says, listen, I'm a shepherd. And when I've been a shepherd, oftentimes lions and bears will come and try to take the sheep, and I will attack them and beat them and kill them. God is the one who is fighting today. God is the one who is fighting today. It's helpful to realize as you look back at verses 34 to 37 that uh, probably a lot of our conceptions about David at this point are somewhat inaccurate. Um, I think we often picture David as sort of like a 12-year-old kid who's sort of scrawny, and um, that's probably not true. Um, David beat a bear to death, uh, he tells us. That's pretty tough. I've never done that. Um, I've never even attempted that. Uh, but I imagine that's pretty hard. Some of y'all might, might have done that. Uh, you know, the VeggieTales story has has David as a mini asparagus, and that's probably just not Accurate. David's probably 18 or 19 here. He is probably a well-built young man, uh, and he is, um, he's not tiny. Anyway, so uh, Saul is trying to talk David out of it. David's like, no, I'm going in. So Saul's like, okay, at least let me arm you well. So in verses 38 and 39, uh, Saul says, here, take my armor, take my sword, and David says, like, no. Like, he kind of puts it on, and he's sort of like, You know, wanders around, he's like, I can't walk in this, I can't move in this. So he refuses the best armor. Instead, verse 40 tells us, David steps onto the field of battle dressed as a shepherd to fight against the enemies of God. He steps onto the field as Israel's champion, dressed not as a mighty warrior, but dressed as a shepherd. And Goliath begins immediately to mock him. Goliath mocks him uh, in verses 43 to 47, uh, mocks him, degrades the God of Israel, defies the God of Israel. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? But David responds to Goliath in verses 43 to 47 and makes it very clear. Goliath, today you're going to die. I'm going to cut your head off. And everyone's going to know that there is a God in Israel. You see it, right? You see David gets what is happening here. He gets what is going on. God's honor drives him to fight. And David is confident that God will give him the victory. And it's so funny because the chapter goes on and on and on in so much detail that you get to the actual fight scene and it's almost anticlimactic, you see it, it's two verses long. We've got 47 verses of description to this point, and the battle lasts two verses. They, they run towards each other. David has a rock, he puts it in a sling, he throws it at Goliath, and it hits Goliath like right in the forehead. Uh, as someone earlier noted, it splits his skull open. That's what it means to say that it embedded itself in his flesh. Goliath has a brain injury and is dead. He falls down. David takes his sword, cuts off his head. The whole thing takes 20 seconds to read. But what's amazing is what happens right after this. Because if you look at it, David has just defeated Goliath. And verses 52 and 53 tell us that David's victory emboldens Israel. They have been fleeing at the very sight of Goliath. They have been terrified and quivering at the nature of this battle. But when they see David's victory, they stand up and they chase the Philistines all the way back to Philistia. And it says that there are dead bodies and spoils just all over the place. It takes them weeks to go and pick up all the loot that the Philistines dropped as they were running away. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of Israel meeting its next king. That's what's happening here. Israel is understanding what their next king is going to be like. Because David was the source of the courage that God's people needed. So the question is then, what does this mean for us? What do we do with all of this? I told you at the beginning of the sermon that courage is the answer to uncertainty. But I did not say whose courage is the answer to uncertainty. And a lot of the sermons that I've heard on this passage tell us to be like David. Be more like David and you can have courage to face the Goliaths in your life. There's a Christian song that has a chorus that talks about facing my giants with confidence. There's a VeggieTales, um, a VeggieTales, uh, I don't even know what you call it, episode? Uh, I, don't even, I don't even know if VeggieTales is still a thing. When I was growing up, VeggieTales was like the bomb for Christian kids. And, and, you know, Goliath is this big kosher dill, David is a mini asparagus, and, and wins, and then sings a song about how, with God's help, little guys can do big things, too. And and the point here is that this passage is not about conquering the Goliaths in your life. Because you are not David. You aren't David. The Bible is not inviting us to put ourselves into the role of the hero here. In fact, if we are anyone in this passage, we are the terrified, quivering Israelite soldiers. You see, friends, the courage we need is not our own. We need the courage of a shepherd king who will fight for us. We need a shepherd king who will stride into the uncertainty of the world, who will stride into the uncertainty of the battle and fight against our impossible enemies, sin and death and the forces of, of darkness. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that we have one. We have a king just like that. We have a shepherd king in David's own line. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Jesus went into battle on the cross to defeat our enemies. And on in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan for all time. And the New Testament reading this morning, Revelation 19, which is shocking in its violence, is the story of Jesus returning again to finish that work. It's the story of Jesus ripping evil out of his world by its roots. And so the point of this passage and the point of this story is not to be like David. It's not even to be like Jesus. The point of this passage is to trust in the king who fights On your behalf, because nothing can separate you from his love and his victory. Would you pray with me? Father, we live in a world of uncertainty, and we often don't know what to do. We don't know how to move through our lives when the future feels uncertain and when we face enemies that seem impossible, sin, and death, and the forces of darkness. Father, we thank you that the answer to all of this is not for us to be braver. But that in Christ, you have fought on our behalf. You have overcome our impossible foes. And that we don't have to be braver because you are brave on our behalf. Uh, Father, anchor us in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf. Remind us of what he has done each and every day. Teach us to move into our lives and into the uncertainty with confidence, because Christ is making all things new. And Father, even now as we come to the table, we pray that you will take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us more and more like Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.